what is the difference between being a good director and being a great director? To be a great director, in my opinion, you gotta be a great storyteller. Simple. If you ain't, I don't care how good it looks, whatever you're doing, and, all right, it's cute, but <laughs> it's to tell a good story. Great story. A great story. That's the core uh, of it. For me. Spike Lee is one of the great storytellers of his era. He's one of the great filmmakers of his era. He's directed many unforgettable films like Do the Right Thing, Malcolm X, many more. You know the list. His latest project is a She's Gotta Have It TV show for Netflix that is rich and vibrant and a really compelling retelling of the story driving Spike's debut film, She's Gotta Have It. It's the story of Nola Darling, a black woman in Brooklyn who's got three very different boyfriends and is not embarrassed about it at all. Nola Darling was controversial when she was introduced in Spike's 1986 film, but now, in the midst of a feminist revolution, this boldly sex-positive black female character seems not like someone recovered from the 80s, but someone who's emblematic of this moment right now. You can't tell a great story without a great character, and Nola Darling is definitely that. And her greatness is proof of Spike's greatness as a storyteller. This is Torrey's show. I'm Torrey. And on this show, I talk to successful people about their success and see what they know that can help the rest of us rise. I want to know what talents, tactics, and attitudes form the core of your success. I want to know how you got up your mountain and what we can learn from your journey. And I always want these conversations to be valuable for you, the listener. I'm going to talk to rappers, actors, writers, athletes, poker stars, and today, the legendary Spike Lee. I've known Spike forever, and this is the most interesting interview we've ever done. His office in Fort Greene, Brooklyn, is about a four-minute walk from my place. So I walked over and met him in his office, a place filled with posters from great films by all sorts of directors, from Fellini to Kurosawa to Scorsese, as well as all sorts of memorabilia from all of Spike's films. We sat in the room where She's Gotta Have It was written, but we started with Hollywood. Did you know Hollywood was so buck wild and vile and evil with the rape and the... Meyer, I, I, I knew, but I never knew people or, or names, but uh, I knew that stuff was going on. I, so, I mean, people forget, in the beginning of Girl 6... There's a scene where a director is having a audition, and he asked the actress to take off her top. You know, so I knew that stuff was going on. I mean, he says, "Show me your breast." I mean, just Quentin Tarantino played that part, that director. I mean, just when you were—that's not the way. I, that's not to say that he. I'm just saying he was the, he was the actor in it. I mean, even when you were living in Brooklyn as a young man, you knew what the casting couch was. I knew what the casting couch was growing up. Like, Yeah, but here's the thing, though. I mean, in my mind, I, I think there's a difference between the casting couch and rape. That's two, in my mind, two totally different things. I mean, if you have to have sex with someone to get a job. Like, that's been going... Since the beginning of time, <laughs> way before movies were even, <laughs> movies were even uh, invented. It's quite a feminist moment, sex-positive moment. 
I mean, it seems like the the world has sort of bounced toward you and she's got to have it, right? It sort of, it fits the moment in a way it wouldn't have two or three years ago even. Well, I mean, give all thanks to Tyne Lewis Lee. <laughs> it was my wife. It was her ideal to uh, revisit this as a TV show. I don't watch a lot of television. She watches TV religiously, you know, especially, uh, you know, shows. She felt that... Uh, it might be a good time to, to bring that, to bring Nola Dolan and the rest of the gang off the shelf. I wonder for you as a writer, when you're expanding the characters, mm-hmm. uh, the challenge of that, because it seems like it would be fun. No, it's not a challenge. Uh, 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 a lot of people forget the original film was only 86 minutes. So there's not that much you can do in 86 minutes. Of course, it's not what you could do in 10 episodes. And it was also, I wrote the real screenplay for this. I didn't write all 10 episodes. I wrote the first episode in episode 10. Then you have Lynn Nottage, two-time Pulitzer Prize winning playwright. Issa Davis, Rada Blank. My sister, Joie, wrote an episode. My, uh, my daughter, Satchel, was in the writer's room. So was Tanya. So... You know, people can say what they want, but they can't say that that this uh, rendition of She's Gonna Have It is told totally through the male gaze. <laughs> the male there, gaze. There, there, were, <laughs> there were a couple of moments when Nola's talking, and I'm like, it sounds like Spike talking. But that's that's... That's not the first time it's happened in 30 years. I mean, there's many things I've said in 30 years of making films that there were some views that were directly my opinion that I had people say. So that's that's not new. <laughs> For example, Denzel got robbed. <laughs> Denzel got robbed. But it was tied together because she's working on a big piece of... Malcolm X. Yes. Nola Darling was born on May 19th, the same born day as Malcolm X. So for me, it's not a major leap to go from Malcolm X <laughs> to Denzel Washington. But I'm glad that you are aware that you do that sometimes. I know because what I'm some, doing. Sometimes it breaks me as a viewer out of the dream of the film when I'm well, like, you know what? That's Spike's Too bad. personal. Too bad. <laughs> <laughs> Don't you want to protect that dream? You got me into the theater. I paid. I'm sitting there with you in the dark. Don't you want to wrap me up in the dream and not have break me out of it? People talk to the motherfucking screen. What are you talking about? <laughs> They're bringing the fourth wall. <laughs> and we did that in the very first film but way you, back in 1986. So what are you talking about? But you have control over it. You have control over what you do. It's, it's, I've been working my craft for 30 years, and I think that a lot of people, I would say most people have gotten used to what I do, so it's not uh, earth-shattering as it seems to be on you when uh, <laughs> when we do some things. I mean, look, you know, a lot of people do that, you know. Uh, it's, it's, look, man, it's all love. I'm just messing with you. <laughs> no, I mean, I know when I have Nola Dawn saying that Denzel got robbed and then we talk about the makeup call and relate that to sports and officials 
And then we break it down and say, why did Denzel lose? Well, we lost. We, we, we had to bring in Al Pacino. Al Pacino is a makeup call. Al Pacino did not win an Oscar for Godfather 1, Godfather 2, Serpico, Doggy Afternoon is one other film I always forget. So Denzel's young. They got to give it to Al Pacino for Send of a Woman. And then Denzel gets it for Trading Day. Trading Day, which he should have won anyway. And then after the, the, we, we filmed the scene, that film was seen after the Academy Awards. So that's when we had the ADR line saying, and he better not lose for Fences either. <laughs> <laughs> Fences was definitely incredible. Look, one of the things that I love about this She's Gotta Have It mm-hmm. is you've created this complex world of blackness. The characters may not always be truly fleshed out, but as a world, there's a tremendous diversity I mean, and, within and there's the a new black term, community. Which I think I've always been, but unapologetically black. So that was, uh, I don't think we really, I mean, for the exceptions of a film like Summer Sam or 25th Hour, I mean, we've always been B-L-A-C-K, you know, so. Yeah, Inside Man was a little more. Yeah, yeah you include Inside Man yeah. too, yeah. But, but, but other but, than that, you know, it's like. School. Let's look at it. She's gonna have it. School days. Do the right thing. I mean, Malcolm X. Malcolm X. Mo better. I mean, Brooklyn. You've been talking about what it means to be black. Yeah. So it's not new. I mean, we were saying, you know, everybody's saying, get woke, get woke, motherfuckers. We were saying, wake up, 1988. Right. 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 (laughs) We were talking about gentrification. But do the right thing. Well, let's talk about That's this. 1989. But talk to you about this but we've character. we've been talking about this stuff. We were talking about global warming and doing the right thing. But the first moment I see Nola Darling, mm-hmm. I know that's my sister. I know she's down. Mm-hmm. I am sure she's down with Black Lives Matter. Right. So as a writer, why do you need to have her say Black Lives Matter when I already know she's down? Because not everybody's as, as, as woke as you. <laughs> <laughs> Uh, that's that moment well, you know, you know Netflix had that note too but look I said look everybody is not woke so I really have to take that you know, in, in, in consideration sometimes not all the time but sometimes you gotta think about you know you wanna pick people up and not always be talking over the head and I thought it was very important at the end of episode one that black lives matter the black people still being killed mm. in the United States of America it's not like that's cliche or old it, it, we're still being shot down right. in these streets and cops are still walking. Yeah. So it's not it's not like old. Who was the better Mars? Anthony I'm or not, Spike? Anthony's a much better actor than I am. He is, but you are a great actor as Mars. No, well, here's and the you thing. crushed that role. Well, here's the thing, though. It really, we have to be honest. It wasn't just Mars. It was a Michael Jordan commercials, too. People, that those ads changed the game. Okay. And, and so a lot of people didn't even know I was a filmmaker, didn't even know where that character came from. But they knew Mars from but the you, Nike, Michael Jordan. You crushed Mars. Mars. You had it well, thank down. You. You, own, I mean, uh, in you, a know, way, you know what, though? And, and, and again, I'm, thank you for the compliment. But my best, I'm not an actor, but I will say this. My best acting was Mookie in Do the Right Thing. That's better than Mars. <laughs> I think so. M- Mookie's very good. Mars damn near steals the picture. And it's a challenge for Anthony. No, here's the thing, though. Of course, the challenge, DeWan had a great challenge with uh, Nola. We know that. But Nola 
it's not a global, iconic fadeaway right. march. You could go on Google now right. and see murals of Mars Blackman painted on walls had nothing to do with all over the world. So Anthony had a lot. He killed it. Here's the thing. I saw Hamilton eight times, three times at the public, and five times when we moved to Broadway. And I knew right away I, I wanted Anthony to play, Anthony Ramos to play Mars. Because it was, cause here's the thing, though. Because that character was so big, was so global, I had to, had to distance himself away from, at the distance of new Mars from the old Mars. That's why Mars Blackman in the Netflix series is afro Boricua. He's black and Puerto Rican. He's black and Puerto Rican. So I felt that that would help, you know, making a distance between the two. And Anthony, he crushed it. Part of the beauty of that character, too, is he brings a sense of pride to folks who live in the projects. Right, right, which we don't always see on screen, right? Folks who live in the projects are downtrodden. Fort Green projects. Right, he's, he's happy. His apartment looks great. He's proud. Yeah, he's happy because he's not paying rent. <laughs> he's crashing. His, his sister's paying the rent. He's not paying a dime. So he's very happy. <laughs> the Thanksgiving dinner scene, I'm glad you brought that back. As a writer, you have to bring that back, right? Because right? here's the the conflict. Everybody in the same room. Yeah, you it, can't leave. Here's the way I approached it. Ten episodes. So I wanted the first episode. There's two episodes. Again, I, I know I might be redundant. I wrote two episodes of the ten. The first and the last one, the tenth episode. I wanted the first episode to be like a comic book, where it's the first, it's the origin. Right. It's like... Spider-Man 1. The motherfucker got bit by a spider, and so now you see the whole world. I just wanted this way. I did that because I knew a lot of people might not have seen the movie. So I didn't want to be like, you had to see the movie to understand the series. And then one of the people's favorite scenes of the film was a Thanksgiving dinner. So I said, that has to be the last episode. I mean, this, this is the moment of conflict. You've and, set this scene in motion of the, Nola and the three lovers. Let's put them all in the same room and see what and happens. Love four, Opal. Which, Opal. And then, so then, we had the, then, we, then was episodes were open, two, three, four, five, six, seven, eight, nine, and that's where we all sat in this room right here, and we figured out who would write what, I mean, and as, we did the work. As a writer, to put all four of those main characters who have natural deep conflict in the same room and they have interpersonal conflict. They're coming from different areas. Of life. I mean, that's just a, a dream. You could do so much with that. Yeah, but we had, uh, again, the template was the, was the scene from the film. So what I really wanted to do is elevate it. And uh, my brother, as you see, sitting here on this, sitting here talking to you on a purple sofa I came with the idea that uh, it should be a tribute to our brother Prince you did you know you've done great work great work with the brother you know him very well and if and if you remember the episode, each episode begins with the countdown from Raspberry Beret right. one two, two one two, two three four three. then we cut the biggie yeah. where's Brooklyn at where's Brooklyn at and uh, I want to I want to give a shout out to the, the to uh, the Prince estate because at that time they had not given approval for any of Prince's music mm. to be used mm. at all. 
I mean, it was like a shutdown. And they are very gracious, gave us love, and let us uh, use that countdown, which you see throughout the 10 episodes. In the 10th episode, you hear, you finally hear Raspberry Beret. Now, when you bust out Raspberry Beret, right. and the four of them start doing this extended dance together, mm-hmm. and part of me was like, what? They're all doing a dance together? These men don't like each other. They want to get hurt. They push them. But I was like, well, he's talking about the power of Prince to bring people together, even as disparate people. All black people are going to be like, we love Prince. Even if I hate you, I love Prince. We got that together. And they want to win Nola on the dance floor, too. (laughs) (laughs) So they're willing to have the dance competition. They all end up in Nola's loving bed. We had the Star Wars scroll <laughs> with Jeffrey Wright reading the, defi- the urban definition of the itis. <laughs> <laughs> and they dissolve one by one. And Nola is left there. Spoiler alert. And Nola is left there alone in her loving bed. And the doorbell rings. And uh, Opal shows up. <laughs> Keep going. <laughs> Pile it on more. You know, one thing, one thing that I had a struggle with, and some people struggled with, mm-hmm. is, is Shemekha's butt story, mm-hmm. right? Where you're talking about plastic surgery yeah. and these sort of things. Mm-hmm. And as you're building toward the climax of that moment, it, it seemed like a funny subtext. I wasn't sure if you were meaning to be funny or tragic. And, when she, and I'm, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to say it because I'm going to yeah. assume people getting this far yeah. in the show have mm-hmm. seen the, your show. Mm-hmm. When she crashes and her butt explodes... It seems funny, and I laugh. Uh, but then when I see her in the hospital, it's tragic. Mm-hmm. So now I'm not really sure as an audience member, is it meant to be funny? Is it tragic? And then, and then you don't come back to it. So I don't know. Is she going to end up fine? Is she messed up for well, life? I, you need to talk this Netflix season, season two. But, but here's the thing I like to say, and I, pre- I appreciate your, uh, your comment. And you're not the only person who felt like that. I never, ever tell people what to think and a lot of times there's a thing there's a term called tragic comedy a lot of Shakespeare mm-hmm. Is, mm-hmm. Is, is tragedy and you laugh at the same time mm-hmm. but in no way shape or form do the laughs I think should be of of a, of a ha 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 it's a nervous laughter it's a nervous nervous laughter because Women are dying. Women are dying going to these. First of all, everybody can't afford a real, real, I'm not going to name no names, but most people can't afford that, but they want the butt. So they go to these back alley, fake doctors. They get the shit from motherfucking Home Depot. It's true. Are a lot of people doing this? Yes. People are dying. And, and what I think, what I think I hope people would understand is that this is really a comment about what women will do. Are they doing it because mm-hmm. they feel this will make them more attractive? Now they will be loved. Now they will be desired. That they will go through some bootleg, dangerous operation. And then that makes you think about their lack of self-love, knowledge of self. People are dying. Women are dying 
with these bootleg back alley butt operations. So I think that's hopefully, you know, we go with, when we get with Shemekha, God one second semester, we'll get more into that, more of the, her mindset. Yeah. Of why women like that do that. We live in a world where you can get anything you need delivered to your door thanks to DoorDash. If you don't want to do the dishes or you feel a little sick, let DoorDash bring dinner tonight. My family uses DoorDash all the time because it connects us to our favorite restaurants without us having to drive. Last night, we got some Indian food for my wife, some gumbo for me, and sushi for the kids. And everyone was happy, and we didn't have to do the dishes. The process of ordering was quick and easy, and I love DoorDash for real. So I was so happy to do this for them because I'm a customer, because I know DoorDash is your door to more. Must be over 21 to order alcohol. Alcohol available only in select markets. DoorDash, your door to more. Download the DoorDash app now to get almost anything delivered. One of the people who helped inspire me to want to be in broadcasting is Oprah Winfrey. She's an inspiration for so many of us, but her daytime talk show was so incredible. And it told me that you could be black and authentic and real on TV. And that made me want to do it, too. Black Stories, Black Truths is NPR's new collection that's a celebration of blackness. Each of NPR's black voices are as direct, varied, distinct and nuanced as the black experience itself. In the Black Stories, Black Truths collection, you'll hear stories of joy, resilience, empowerment, and how to create world-shifting things out of struggle. Every episode is a living account of what it means to be Black today, told from a unique Black perspective. Black perspectives that haven't always been centered in the telling of America's story, but now they are the story. On NPR's Black Stories, Black Truths, you'll find a collection of some of NPR's best podcast episodes celebrating the Black experience. Hear a feed of episodes from across NPR's podcasts that center Black voices. Turn on NPR today and hear a range of voices as varied, as nuanced, and as Black as we are. Stories should never be about us without us. Listen now to Black Stories, Black Truths from NPR, wherever you get your podcasts. Influencer. It's a word that gets tossed around a lot these days. There is a woman who went the distance, who broke ground as the first true influencer by living a remarkable life. Her name, Elizabeth Taylor. I'm Katy Perry. This is the story of the original influencer. This is Elizabeth the First. Elizabeth the First, the podcast, wherever you listen. As a, Again, as a filmmaker... Mm-hmm. I understand as an artist not wanting to, to not wanting to tell the audience what to think, mm-hmm. but the audience should know the filmmaker or the artist knows where we're going, even if I don't understand. I know where we're going, but we, we don't want we want to say that for season two again, you know, uh, God willing. So outside of the time aspect, what's mm-hmm. the biggest difference between TV storytelling and movie storytelling? Time is everything. I think that's one of the reasons why maybe one of, I think it may be one of the reasons why a lot more interesting stuff is being done on 
television, uh, Netflix, Amazon, the other people, Showtime, they HBO, they could take more risk than the studios, and therefore, the bigger risk, there's a higher percentage of uh, intelligent storytelling, I think, where it's not so, you know, getting the same thing, part six, part seven, part eight, I'm not talking about Star Wars, but a lot of these other, which I love the, the new Star Wars, we just get this other stuff, so it was, again, just, just look at this, she's got half, it was 86 minutes, now we've had the luxury, we've been blessed to do 10 episodes, there's just a lot, you don't you don't see Nola Donald pick up a, a paintbrush right. in the film. Now we really, you know, we had the time, and, and, and pun intended, we have a bigger canvas to paint on. What about you as an artist? Do you, are you able to do things as a filmmaker now that you were just not creatively able to do, to pull off when you made She's Gotta Have It? Yeah, I didn't know. I mean, yeah, that's an easy question. I didn't know what the fuck I was doing <laughs> That was my first feature film. It does not look like a first feature film. Well, it, it, well, a, I mean, it's a very well made. It's clearly a small budget film, but it's a very well made film. Well, well uh, the 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 filmmaker that made she's gonna have is is uh, not the same filmmaker I am today. So we were we shot that film twelve days of July nineteen eighty five from July first to the fourteenth, two six day weeks. 12 God, days. She's got to have it. 12 days. A great, great, my man, Ernest Dickerson, DP. Ernest, Ernest and I, Ernest, Ernest Dickerson, Angley and I were all classmates. Same class. And when you NYU graduate film school class of 1982. And uh, Ernest shot all my films at NYU grad film. All Ernest did after she's going to have the shot school days, do the right thing, Mo Better Blues. Uh, Jungle Fever and Malcolm X. After Malcolm X, he directed a Tupac in, in Juice and he's been directed. And presently, Ernest is one of the best episodic TV directors working today. You've talked some in this tour about uh, the rape scene mm -hmm. and she's got to have it. I know mm -hmm. you say you regret it. Mm -hmm. Are you saying you shouldn't have shot it or you should have had more context so the audience further no, understand? No, it should never have been done. I mean, it should never have been done. But, you know, it's done Early on, way back, you Google, I said those mistakes, so it's not like you know, I'm trying to, yeah. at the last minute, say no, no. that. You know, it was, it was a mistake, you know, and, and so rarely does an artist go back and get to do something, you know, get it, as we used to stay, playing sports in the streets here. A do-over, do-over, do-over. You do have a, a, a do-over in this, in that when she's dealing with an assault or an attempted assault on the street, mm -hmm. The, the the film or the show deals with it in a much more serious and mature way. And it yeah, has an actual I'm impact 30, on her life. I'm 30 years, old. <laughs> yeah. 30 years old. I'm 30 years older. Married and, and two kids. So, again, I mean, I've used the word immaturity, you know. So it's not like this is something that I, I knew just yesterday when we came back. And I said that, you know, from the jump. When you're, when you're on the set, Things are going crazy. What is the self-talk? What are you saying to yourself inside to, like, keep yourself at the highest level of filmmaking? You know, half the time you're screaming, so. 
<laughs> it's not even about the highest level of filming. It's like, let's get this motherfucker shot. You screaming, sh- no, but you, are you screaming at yourself? What no, are you, what I'm screaming are you, at... Right, but what are you saying to yourself when you're at very difficult moments of filming? Well, I get, we got to shoot this motherfucker. <laughs> Come on. <laughs> All that philosophy. There ain't no philosophical, philosophical shit going on. It's like, we got to get this motherfucker going. Let's come on. What's the hold up? We got to shoot. <laughs> and I, I don't mean, know you're, what set you've been on. But it, I mean, <laughs> you're, I'm trying to get them up. We got to go. We got to move. What's the problem? Whatever the problem is, we got to fix and we got to shoot. I mean, you're one of the most driven people who I've met, who I've seen in the culture the last 30 years. Mm-hmm. And, you know, I just start to wonder, what is the internal voice that keeps the drive going? What are you, what are you driven to do? Oh, now, now you ask the question that way, I can answer. Okay. I'm doing what I love. Because I've come to learn in my 61 years on this God's planet that most people have a job they hate. Mm-hmm. And, and you and I were blessed because we're doing what I love. Mm-hmm. You're a hell of a writer. You write. Most people on this earth do not have a job that they love. So we're, we're blessed. Can you imagine if, if either one of us with family, with responsibilities, we had to get up and go to a job Every motherfucking day that we hate. Oh, that sounds crazy. That's what I'm saying. So that's, I know most that's, people deal with what? that. I know most people are dealing with that. Yeah, and because they have to, because they're responsible adults, they're not gonna let their kids go hungry. They're not gonna, you know, they gonna do what they gotta do. Yeah, but they don't enjoy the job they have where they get the income from. So anybody, and I'm talking about, you know, murderers or right. drug dump drug deal I'm just saying if, if you can make an honest living doing what you love then then you're gonna finish you know when you when you when you get dead when you're dead and buried you won okay you won so you're winning yes what do you love about this filmmaking directing all of this Be, the thing I love about filmmaking is because it, it it's it's about music which I love photography dance uh uh Drama. I mean, it, it it is all these things. I mean, if you're a painter, I mean, not not to compare the arts, but that's one thing. It can be photographer, unless you want to do something else. So the multimedia but, but, aspect yes, of this. Yes, all that, all that stuff, all that stuff. I mean, uh, okay, what are what are the, what are the components of filmmaking? You have writing script, photography. The production design, the costume design, the music, the editing, special effects, if you want, you know, working with actors, working with, with or fellow filmmakers, all these things come together, you know, under, under the heading under, of cinema, making, making a film. Can you say, is there a part, we talk about writing. I'll tell you what's the hardest. Shooting, shooting. editing, shooting's the hardest. Shooting's a motherfucker. Okay. It's a grind. Which one do you like the most and which one do you like the oh. least? Shooting is very hard. I'm not going to put it in order. I just say I love writing because I'm just by myself. Even though shooting is a modified, I, I love it, but it, it's it's the hardest thing when, you, when you're shooting. Just a grind. 
editing is great because it's you and the editor. But one of my favorite parts of the whole process is when we do the score. The film is cut. Now, for me, a movie isn't a movie till we put the score in. So I've been blessed with my, my father, great musician, great composer, who's done the scores for my NY student films, did the score for She's Gonna Have It, Do the Right Thing, Mobile Blues, School Days. And we used since then Terrence Blanche has done scores, Bruce Hornsby. So that's that's when the movie becomes the movie. Once I hear the score. We talked about a lot of aspects of filmmaking, but marketing is something you've always been good at and enthusiastic well, about. Here's the thing, though. In, my, in fact, last night Tanya and I were at dinner, and she's looking at me and says, you ever been doing this? I said, what are you talking about? You got a, a jacket on. It says 40 acres. One pass is 40 acres. Other pass has defend Brooklyn. And then another pass says she's going to have it. I said, when did you start doing that? <laughs> what are you talking about? We started doing that. And I said, Tanya, I, I knew that as being an independent filmmaker, I was not going to have studios going to be spending millions of dollars to market my films. There was, she's going to have it, didn't have a TV commercial. Right. So I knew that I'm going to have to be motherfucking P.T. Barnum, <laughs> you know, and be the hype man and hype my shit. Because they weren't going to spend the money. I mean, if you remember, the, the, the trail of a she's going to have it starts with me selling tube socks. Right, right, three, right. Tube right. socks, tube socks, three for five dollars. They said, well, I'm not selling tube socks. I'm, I'm making films. Puts food on the table, keeps <laughs> a roof over my house. Over exactly. My head. So, it's, uh, so I'm going to make it deeper. My father would give these concerts. We used to, he used to rent, there's a place called Cami Hall down the block from Town Hall in Manhattan. And she, he would rent it out and me, have me and my siblings hand out flyers to people in front of Cami. Motherfuckers trying to go home. Billy, who the fuck is that? And so we'd be sitting in these, in these halls, in these places, and we're the only people there. I mean, there's a scene, there's a scene like that in, in Crooklyn. So I said, and, and so, I mean, that happened. But I, at that time, I, I didn't know I want to be a filmmaker. But when I knew when I knew I want to be a filmmaker, I said, you know what? I got to do it different than my father. And that's no disrespect because uh, he was just going to do it his way. And if people come, they come. They don't. Just like he made the decision he wasn't going to play electric bass ever. And that's why my mother had to get a job and work at St. Anne's in Brooklyn Heights. So, and then I also knew how hard my mother worked. You know, the five kids in the house. She was, you know, the bread. You know, she was a meal ticket. Because my father was not, you know, he get every gig every now and then, but he was not playing electric bass. At one point, my father, Bill Lee, was the top folk, folk bassist in the world. Bob Dylan, Judy Collins, Odetta, Peter, Paul, and Mary, Gordon Lightfoot. He was the guy. He's in all those albums. And even though he's a jazz bassist, he was a Tiger uh, Newport Jazz Festival. We used to go with him sometimes. But when Bob Dylan said, I'm going electric, 
Everybody went electric. So there was no one, nobody wanted an acoustic bass anymore. My father refused to play. He wasn't doing it. You were 18 when your mom passed? No, I was, I was a, a sophomore. So I was 20. I was a sophomore at Morehouse. Morehouse. What impact did that have on you? Oh, well, I had a great impact. In fact, uh, I was in Morehouse, and, I mean, she died right down there at uh, Brooklyn Hospital. Ironically, my first office yeah. was the firehouse across the street from Brooklyn Hospital. On DeKalb. On DeKalb Avenue, 124 DeKalb. And also my brother, Chris, the one under me, he died in Brooklyn Hospital, too. Again, across the street from my first office. Uh, my mother was uh, interesting. My mother loved she. She was a cinephile, but my father hated movies. <laughs> loved sports, right? So I got my love. I mean, you and you don't. It's, it's 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 crazy. You don't understand till later on the impact your parents had and how they were introducing stuff to you at a young age that really didn't take hold till you're an adult. So growing up, my love of sports came from my father. And my love of movies came from my mother. Not that I want to be a filmmaker, but my father hated movies, so I was my mother's movie date. He wasn't going to, we hated movies. But, you know, let's go to Spike. Let's go to, let's go to, let's go to Shea Stadium to the Yankees. Let's go to the Garden to see the Knicks. Let's go to Yankee Stadium to see the New York Giants. So... Me and my father going to sporting events. But it was my mother who was taking me not to the movies. My mother was dragging me to Broadway plays, museums. Not just me, my, my, my siblings too. And we never wanted to go. <laughs> we would go kicking and screaming. Uh-huh. But after this, we would say, you know, Mommy, that was good. <laughs> so my mother had the vision that she wanted to introduce her children to the arts. Okay. Not that we we're going to be artists, but she just wanted her children to love the arts. And so that's, that's where it all came from. But it wasn't until the summer between my sophomore and junior years, the first summer after my, my mother died, that I decided I want to be a filmmaker. The summer after she passes. She passed in October. You say... I'm going to be a filmmaker. Right. When she had been your conduit to mm-hmm. visual. Uh, so right. is, is that is that part of it? No, the story is this. Uh, my friend, Vietta Johnson, she lived on Cumberland, no, Ashland Place and Willoughby. We grew up together. She was very smart. She went to Stuyvesant in high school. She knew she was early. When she was real young, she said she wanted to be a doctor, which she is now. She went to Stuyvesant High School, the best high school in New York City, public high school. Then went to Princeton undergrad and Harvard Meds. Anyway, one day that summer, the summer of 1977 was one of the most infamous summers of all time. A lot of shit happened. Number one, New York City was broke. There's a famous Daily News front page, Ford, Ford the city dropped, dropped dead. Dropped dead, yes. Ford being? Gerald Ford, president of the United States. Yeah, Gerald Ford, and the mayor was A.B. So no one had a summer job. And the blackout was that summer? Right? Yeah, the blackout was that summer. Uh, first summer disco, Yankees in the, in the World Series. Anyway. The Reggie I, Jackson Reggie Yankees. Reggie Jackson won one game. And, and, some, and David Berkowitz. 
Son of Sam. Yeah, serial killer. So I went over her house. We were sitting in the living room, and there's a box in the corner. I said, what is that? She says, that's Super 8 camera. You can have it. She said, I don't need that. I mean, I'm going to be a doctor. I have no need for that camera. You can have it. Take it, take it, take it. I said, what's the other box? She said, that's the film, the cartridge for the Super 8 camera. Take them both. So now I had something to do. I spent the whole summer filming. Again, it was the blackout, like you said. So my father drove me around where all the black and poor Ricks were looting. We went to 125th Street. <laughs> people, they tell you. People saying, it's Christmas in July. I mean, if anything, they, they, I mean, they were, they, they were driving motherfucking cars out the, <laughs> out the I mean, the car places, uh, the showrooms. It was the first summer disco, so every, every, every block was having a block party in the summertime. They, they uh, plug in the, the, the turntable and the speakers, the street lamps, the dance was the hustle. And as I said before, uh, you had Son of Sam. So I went back to Morehouse in the fall, beginning of my junior year, and declared my major. My major was mass communications, film, TV, radio, journalism, something, photography. And Morehouse didn't have that major. I took My major was across the street at Clark College. Clark Atlanta University. Well, it wasn't. Back then it was Clark College because... Later on, Clark College merged with Atlanta University. It was Atlanta University Center, Morehouse, Spelman, Clark Mor- College, Morris Brown, Morris Brown, AAU. And I might add, I'm a third generation Morehouse man. Uh, my father, when my father was a freshman, Dr. Martin Luther King was a senior. And my grandfather went there. My mother went to Spelman. And my grandma went to Spelman. So both my parents and my grandparents met there. Uh, ironically, uh, Martin King III and I were in the same class. And also former home security guy, John J. Johnson. We were all in the oh, class. Okay. Uh, 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 79. So was my, this teacher who's still there today, Dr. Professor Herb Eichelberger. I told him about this footage I have I had shot during the summer. And he said, you should make a film out of it. And I spent the whole summer, excuse me, spent the whole first semester, fall semester working on it. Showed it to my class second semester, and I liked it. And I said, that's it. But I like to say right now that many times, uh, my film class was Monday, Wednesday, and Fridays, but I wanted to work on it every single day. So Dr. Herb Eichelberger would come in on Tuesdays and Thursdays because he had the key to the, uh, the film lab so I could work on my film. And th- he was doing that because he, for me. He wasn't being paid extra for that. You know, and that's something that you got a lot going to historic black school because the the, the the teachers, professors, you know, they care about you. And not to say if you don't go to historic black school that you're not get great education, but those teachers, when I went to when I went to school, they cared about not just me but all their students. Yeah. So out of that, mm. you became one of the great filmmakers of your era, of your generation. What is it about you personally that led to that happening? Preordained. I mean, there's so many things that happened in my life that, that I'm like saying, you know what? That was not a mistake. It was not a mistake that the Spirit told me to go see better 
Johnson that day. To get the Super 8 camera. Yes. I had, what else I was going to do? I don't want to play Stratomatic Baseball on our stoop the whole summer. Also, that day, I go see her, and she has a Super 8 camera and film there. Also, who was the person that gave her the camera in the first place? I mean, you, 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 you have this. I would not be, I would not, we would not, fair. we would not be here doing the interview if at that specific day, that great day in my life, probably knowing it, I went to see Bietta Johnson. I would not be a filmmaker. But you have shown us incredible drive, work ethic. That has nothing to do with it. You have to start. You have to start. You have to have a start. But once you're on the road. And and if I had not gone to, uh, I noticed, I noticed in my heart, if I did not go, it was was not a mistake that the Spirit told me to go see Vietta Johnson that day. I'll tell you another example. It's It's not a mistake that my wife and I met. I was there. It was the Congressional Black Caucus. I was there to promote Malcolm X. It was coming out in November. Tanya's parents, excuse me, Tanya's father was a big guy. He's the treasurer for Philip Morris. And they had bought a table. And for some reason, he didn't want to go. So he tells his two daughters, my future wife, Tanya, and her sister, Tracy, that Philip Morris, we bought this table. I can't go. You got to go. Mm-hmm. Tanya is there. She's working at DC, a, a law firm, having just recently finished law school at UVA, went to Sarah Lawrence undergrad. And so she's there. Doesn't even want to go, but she knows her father bought the table, Philip Morris bought the table, so she goes. And for some reason, I'm going to the restroom, she's going to the restroom, and we meet. And then. The rest of the night, I'm looking for her, <laughs> and I got to leave. So I'm leaving, going down the escalator, and she's going up the escalator. So I can't front, so I leave my date. <laughs> oh, wow. Because <laughs> I know time I listen to it, say, you like that shit? Why you leave that shit out, motherfucker? <laughs> so I, leave, I said, tell my date I left something. I'll be right back. I, I left some on the table. So I say, wait here. <laughs> and I fly back up the escalator and get a number. That was not a mistake. So, I, I mean, I just, I mean, there's still there been so many things like that that happened in my life that I'm saying, you know what? That was meant to be. All right. Let me ask it a slightly different way. What is the difference between being a good director and being a great director? I think that I know you interview me now. I understand it, but I think that if you ask directors, there would be many, many different answers. Yeah. I, but here's the way I would answer that, and I, and I appreciate the question. To be a great director, in my opinion, you got to be a great storyteller. Simple. <laughs> if you ain't, I don't care how good it looks, whatever you're doing. And, all right, it's cute, but <laughs> it's, you have to tell a good story. Great story. A great story. That's the core uh, of it. For me. Now, look, again, you asked me, so I'm asking. That's the way I'm going to answer the question because that's what I believe. But you might get different. But great, great songwriters tell great stories. Yeah. You, I don't think you could be a great novelist if you ain't telling a great story. So you, you could apply that to many different arts. I mean, uh, many different, different arts. 
for me, it comes down to you look at a painting, no Bearden, Jake Lawrence. That's storytelling. Yeah. Catholic. Yeah. And it's not even moving. <laughs> <You know? laughs> I mean, you know, it's stationary. So, music, story. I mean, one of my favorite songs of all time, "Living for the City." Mm. It was Stevie, Stevie did, Wonder. Mr. Wonder. When he when he stopped the song. Mm, mm, with the little montage. Buster, New York City. Skyscrapers and everything. Hey, hey, Just bud. like I pictured hey, hey, it. No, yeah, just, hey, babe, come here. Come here. Whoa, 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 whoa. Well, I didn't know <laughs> the state of New York's in 20 years. Oh, man. Getting that cell, nigga. Oh, yeah. man. Yeah. Oh, God, man. <laughs> Isn't that, for me, that's the most. Yeah, it takes and you in. thank God. I said when I heard that song, not when I heard it, song, but when I became a filmmaker, when I became a filmmaker, that song came out when I was in high school. John Dew High School, Coney Island. But when I became a filmmaker, I said, you know what? One day I'm going to use this song. Jungle Fever. Yeah. When Flipper goes to the Taj Mahal to find his crackhead brother Gator, played by the great. Today, today is Samuel Jackson's birthday, too. Oh, happy birthday. And uh, Halle Berry, look, I, people might say I'm biased, but she's what she did is that crack. Oh, she Vivian, she the two dollar crack hoe. Hmm. For me, that's that's I mean, I how I see all of it working. Again, you think I'm biased, but what she did with that, damn. So, at, and at the core of great storytelling mm-hmm. is. Tell a great story. No, but I mean, like, is it is it conflict? Is it character? Is it, it? I don't want to. I don't want to put a label on it. I mean, if there's no conflict, there's no story. Yeah, but I don't want to put a label on it for me. So, it's a. Uh, it's one of those things. I know it might sound corny, cliche, but you know it when you see it. Yeah. You know it when you hear it. Yeah. Like that shit. Okay. I mean, there's a lot of great stuff where you can't even, you know, the shit's so great. It's not like, you're like trying to decipher and break the shit down, but you can't because it's like, you might not know even where to begin. Mm. Like, that's just, just, that's just dope. <laughs> and also, for me, again, what does eating healthy mean to you? Whatever your eating goals, Thrive Market is the best place to get all your groceries and household essentials. And getting Thrive shipped to your door is like having a great supermarket right outside your house. I love that Thrive Market carries brands with the highest quality ingredients and ethical sourcing methods. Whether you're looking for organic kid snacks or low sugar alternatives or gluten-free essentials, Thrive Market's got it and their site lets you curate your shopping experience quickly. And as a Thrive member, I save on every order, usually about 30%, which of course I love. And when you join, you help a family in need with the membership matching program. Join in on the savings with Thrive Market today and get 30% off your first order plus a $60 gift for free. Go to thrivemarket.com slash for 30% off your first order plus that free $60 gift. That's Thrive, T-H-R-I-V-E Market. Dot com slash Toray. Thrivemarket.com slash Toray. On March 16, 2000, two sheriff's deputies were shot in Atlanta. Jamil Alamine, a Muslim leader and former black power activist, was convicted. But the evidence was shaky, and the whole truth didn't come out during the trial. 
My name is Mosi Secret, and when I started investigating this case in my hometown, I uncovered a dark truth about America. From Tinderfoot TV, Campside Media, and iHeart Podcasts, Radical is available now. Listen to the new podcast, Radical, for free on the iHeart Radio app or wherever you get your podcasts. With all humility, I'm speaking, you know, myself, and sometimes I don't want to dissect it. I don't want to break this thing, this great thing I'm hearing or seeing, whatever it is. I want to break it down to its minutiae and like, it, it's fine the way it is for me. I don't have to do that for Live for the City. You know, like, let me put out the lyrics and, and get the, and see what Steve was saying here. And all. I, don't need, I don't need to do that. I don't need to do that. Okay. What's the difference between a good and a great actor? I would say a great actor. And do it more than once, because there there have been actors who've done a, you know a great performance, but might not you might not see a performance on that level. You mean like, just in, like in multiple films or multiple takes? No, no films. Like like you might have play athletes athletes. There's been some athletes had a great season, but okay, they so, they they ain't, they ain't put that shit together back to back. So. The, Back to back to back to back to back. So as far as your casting goes, mm. Denzel's the best actor there is, right? Right? I mean, that's what I, that's what I get from your casting. So I'm then like, what makes Denzel the greatest actor there is? You, what's that? There's a TV. Isn't there a posture? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Kamal Bell. Uh, look, I love a lot of actors, a lot of great actors. I've been very fortunate to work with Many. Uh, I was thinking about him the other day. Anthony Quinn was in Jungle Fever. Mm. Philip Seymour Hoffman was in 25th Hour. The other day was Ozzy Davis' 100th birthday. You had Ed Norton, right? What? Ed Norton. Edward Norton. But let me finish about Ozzy. Ozzy was 100th birthday. School days. Do the right thing. Jungle Fever. Get on the bus. Ruby D. Mother, sister, and and do the right thing, and 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 uh, her playing Ozzy, married couple, Ozzy and Ruby, and, and 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 Jungle Fever, and where he ends up having, to, he ends up shooting his own son. Oof, that's an I got you, know, I got that from right. That's, oh yeah, Marvin Gaye, but that's yeah. an incredible scene. Yeah, got that from Marvin Gaye. So you, so you, Marvin you, Gaye you, get, you get Sam Jackson, you get Denzel. I mean, you've worked John with Turturro. John Turturro. I mean, Ozzy Davis, Ruby D. You've worked John with Lozamo. So what? Angela Bassett. So let's let's break it down. <laughs> what is it that makes a great actor? What do you what do you want to see from your actors? I want to be surprised. Sometimes I have a vision in my head who I want. Other times I want to find somebody new. What we've done historically is that we've always had like a we push aside a couple roles. And I, I've told my casting directors over the years, Robbie Reed, uh, Kim, Kim Coleman, Aisha Coley, let's find somebody. Do the Right Thing was Rosie Perez's first film. Do the Right Thing was Robin Harris' first film. Do the Right Thing was Martin Lawrence's first film. Uh, Clock was Mackay Pfeiffer's first film. Jungle Fever was Halle Berry's first film. Jungle Fever was Queen Latifah's first film. So we've always, we got, I think the term's called set aside, be surprised. 
I, I like the idea of introducing new faces, new talents to the audience. What's the key to succeeding in Hollywood or the keys? Well, number one, I would ask you, what's your definition of succeed? You mean to make most, to be, to make the most money, to be the most famous? What do you mean by not, succeed? Not necessarily to be Spielberg. You have been working for 30 years mm -hmm. making films. You well, know, number one, I would say lucky. Yeah, but there's more to it than that. I mean, yeah, there's, but, 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 there's but, but here's the thing, though. There's a very famous quote by Branch Ricker, the great Dodge owner who signed Jackie Robinson, and said, luck, very, very famous quote. I've always stood by it once I read it in Jackie Robinson's autobiography. Luck is a residue of design. That if you're busting your ass, you're putting yourself in position for good things to happen. If you're not, if you're half-stepping, shucking and jiving, you're not going to get the opportunity. And, and, and if that opportunity comes, you're not ready because you weren't prepared for it. That's true, and that's real, and that will carry you through any field. Mm -hmm. But I want to hear you talk about what specifically a man or woman has to do to create a lasting career in Hollywood. Because okay. that's a specific town, a specific rules, Got specific it. game. I would say you have to know, number one, what it is you want. Why are you doing this? Are you doing this because you, is this what you love? Or are you doing this because, are you pursuing this because you want to be rich and famous? That's key. Because depending upon your choice, <laughs> you'll make several decisions which will impact what you do because if you're in it to be rich and famous, that means you're going to do a lot of stuff to get to be that point that you might not do if this is what you love. Because if you want to be rich and famous, you're, there's a good chance you can take a lot of shortcuts and do some things you might regret later on in your life. If you went to a if you went to the studios right now and you said, I got this picture, I need $40, 50000000 million to make it, do you think you would be able to get a green light on that? you think you'd be able to get $40, $50 million out of a studio? It depends on the script. It depends who's in it. Depends who's attached. I mean, should yeah. not... Well, here's the thing, though. Shouldn't Spike no, no, Lee... No, no, no. It doesn't work like that. I'm telling you, nowadays you can't get a nickel if nobody's attached to it. That's the first thing to say, who's in it? So if you now, now we're talking about studios. Right. Right. I mean, like, I would expect that you, with your track record, would be able to get most things made. And when I look at what you've done the last 10-some years, I'm like, I don't think he's able to get into Hollywood. I think they're, they're saying no to him, and I don't understand why. Well, Hollywood is their business to make money, and they feel that the film I might – the film that I'm trying to get finances for is not going to make enough money to be worth it or has an attractive cast, they rather not bother. I mean, that's, 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 not, that's not a revelation. The, the most money I've ever had for a film... Is Inside Man? Inside Man was like 40. I've never had a film over $40 million. What was the budget on Malcolm? Malcolm X. That was under like 35. Is that your second biggest budget? Yeah, that's the second one. So is it that 
Spike won't compromise, and you're like, I'm going to do the film I, I want. I don't care what you guys want. Uh, no, number one, you have to be offered. So to this point, I've never been, you know, we got this blockbuster film we want you to do. That's, that has not happened. Isn't that strange? I don't. I don't really, you know, I really, I really can't spend too much time thinking about that stuff. I've not been able to do the by work I've done this last, you know, three decades. So, who's the greatest director of all time? Well, I would say uh, there are some people up here. You got this is the, this is the French poster for On the Waterfront. Kazan signed by there's is. That's he's, he signed it twice, up there and down there. It's signed the spike. If you saw all the other, other come up, I'll show the way this stuff signed by by me, from uh, Fellini, Spielberg, Lucas, Scorsese, Francois Coppola, Akira Kurosawa, a whole bunch of great great artists. Tell me about your next one, Black Klansman. Black Klansman. Uh, we just completed Principal Photography starring John David Washington, who was Denzel's son, wow. and Adam Driver. Wow. It's a true story about a, a Ron Storff is his name, still alive. He was the first black cop in the Colorado Springs, the police department, early 70s, sitting in his office one day, reading the paper, the local paper, the Gazette, and there's an ad for the Klan and thinking that this mm-hmm. is just some BS. This is, 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 is not real. So it's a goof. He calls and calls the number and, and leaves a message with his real name. And they call him back. They want him to join. So to infiltrate the Klan, he has to get a white policeman to play him in person. So Adam Driver. Adam Driver is that Who's guy. a fantastic yes, actor. I mean, I'm blessed, you know. Did he surprise, I imagine he probably surprises you all the time because he seems like he has a great imagination. Oh, yeah, yeah. I mean, it was a, we had a great, great, phenomenal cast. And uh, Ty and I recently, we were at the world premiere for uh, Star Wars in L.A. And he, he's, he's, he's a beast. Adam Driver, man. He, woo. But why, why this story now? Uh, interesting Interesting story. Uh, Jordan Peele owned uh, rights, and uh, they had written a script. And he came to me. We, we need you. Need to do some work. So uh, worked on it uh, with my co-writer, a good friend of mine, Kevin Wilmot, and uh, we did it. I mean, it's, it's a great story. I mean, I, I had not heard of it. The thing about it that that really appealed to Kevin and I, uh, co-screenwriter, is that even though the film takes place in the early seventies. It's about today. Mm. It's about today. It's about the world we live in today. It's about Agent Orange and the White House and this uprising of uh, the alt-right clan, all these people, all these people. One of the things that is controversial in your mm. body of work is, uh, what, what, do you, what do you call it? The dolly shot? What is it? When you're... Oh, what, 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 my what, signature shot? The how, double you, dolly shot. The double dolly shot? That's, That's what, what we call it. it. Double dolly. Why do you like that? <laughs> it, 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 it changes things. 
It puts people in in different environments. Was Mo Better the first film where yeah, you used first, that? First film when Giant was walking. Yeah. Now, when I saw that, yeah. I felt you, and I felt the I felt the technique, and and you know, a lot of your that, fans are the, like, "Why does he keep busting out no, every no, film?" No, they want to say. When's it coming? <laughs> <laughs> oh, I'll tell you though, but but here's the thing though. That was the first time, but that was not the best use of it. The best use of it, one of the best use of it is, is in uh, Malcolm X when the great Sam Cooke is singing the great song, A Change Gonna Come, and, and Malcolm's. You remember that? I mean, I've watched Malcolm X. Yeah, but you go to go, go. That's the best Wait, use of it. I will. I will. Happily Sam Cooke song, Change Gonna Come. Now, that's when we do the double dollar shot. But do you think you maybe have used it too much? The Alfred Hitchcock <laughs> uses cameo too much? <laughs> I don't think so. <laughs> <laughs> so if we, you saw, we, here's the thing. If you saw Alfred Hitchcock film, you know, coming in, that you're going to see him. You're I, expecting I, it. I, I like seeing you. I like your cameos. Mm -hmm. I always thought that was a valuable part of the movie. That's that's that. Nah, 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 nah. Oh my god! I stopped acting. So this, oh except for I did brief cameo in one episodes of uh, She's Gonna Have It. I was a bartender. So we're gonna have more double dolly <laughs> in the future. Oh, we got a great one in uh, in Black Landsman. <laughs> this might be the best ever. How's that? I can't tell you that now. <laughs> <laughs> you going to the Oscars this year? Eh, I don't know. I do hope that uh, they do Mr. Peel justice. Look, you were one of the big voices on Oscars So White. Mm -hmm. and My wife and I, in fact, uh, we, wrote that, uh, we wrote that letter together and put it on my Instagram. And, uh, but, and also, we did not know the Jade... I mean, the Jada and Will were doing that either. So we, that was, that happened but, like on two different coasts. Uh, look, there's still a tremendous amount of institutional yeah. racism in Hollywood. But uh, here's the thing: Reggie no, Hudlin and them have worked to make changes in the Academy. We saw a big difference last year. Yeah, but here's Did the thing, we not? You know, kudos to Reggie. But the impetus was, you know, Oscar. What was the hashtag? Oscar so white. But the impetus was Oscar so white. That that really because Hollywood is always felt themselves as great liberal, whatever yeah. you want to call it. Yeah. And then when that thing came out, that they did not like that. They did not like that at all. So, to their credit, they opened it up and the voting members are much more diverse. Yeah. Than, uh, than they were. Than they were. They're the working time. on it. Right. So, you're going to give them a second chance? You still Oscar so white. Well, I never... All I, I know, I, uh, what Ty and I said, we were not calling, we never said boycott. We just said, we're not coming. <laughs> we don't know what you motherfuckers are doing, but we're not coming. <laughs> do what you want to do. So it was really Jade and Will to call, if I remember correctly, you know, more of a boycott. But we weren't, we weren't doing that to speak on behalf of 40 million, 45 million African Americans. said, we're not coming. You know, this is some BS. Also, here's another thing I'd like to say on, uh, before we end. I have... Love for Issa Rae, her show. And I don't know why people are trying to, like, try to pit us. You know, there's, 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 there's room for 10 more shows, yeah. you know? There's room for 10 more shows. And, and, and for people to think that, that uh, 
we're biting, insecure. I mean, I, I mean, I love my sister, but she was six months old when <laughs> when she got it came out. You know, come on now. I mean, both of y'all are talking about female sexuality, but entirely different ways. Yes, and there's everything room for is everybody. different. Everybody, why why does that have to be competition? And there's room to tell different stories there's, within. I that love realm. my sister. You know, I heard and I read my wife told me last night at dinner that she has two more shows coming on HBO. Yeah. Power to her sister. Do your thing. I want you to hear this. Spike Lee supports you, loves you. Do your thing. Do your thing. Do your thing. It's do all your love. Thing. You only got a problem with white people. <laughs> <laughs> I have a problem with some black people, too. <laughs> Amorosa being one. <laughs> and, and, and I'm waiting for Uncle Ben to resign. <laughs> Uh, my brother. I tried, y'all. <laughs> I tried to get Spike to give up the double dolly thing, but he won't budge. But seriously, he reminds me that at the core of everything artists do is storytelling. If we don't have a compelling story as the basis of our project, whatever it is, then it doesn't matter whatever else you pile on top of it. No matter what your medium is, artists should look at themselves as storytellers first and proceed from there. Thanks to listening to Torre's show, and thanks to Spike for giving me the time. Much appreciated. Definitely check out She's Gotta Have It on Netflix now. If you want to talk to me about that or this episode or anything else, I'm on Twitter at Torre and on Instagram at Torre Show. Torre Show is written by me, Torre, and produced by Chris Colbert with help from Shelby Royston and in association with Cadence 13 Studios. We're beaming to you from the amazing borough of Brooklyn, baddest place in the world, and we'll be back next Wednesday with more knowledge from successful folks because the man ain't shut us down yet. Join us next Wednesday when my guest will be my friend Black Lives Matter co-founder Patrice Cullors, author of the new book, When They Call You a Terrorist, a Black Lives Matter memoir. Do you think, in retrospect, given the nightmare of 45, that perhaps you should have been standing up and saying, wait a minute now, <laughs> we need this because that cannot happen? In retrospect, I think we could have come much harder against Trump. I don't think I would change how we responded to Dems, though. Um, in retrospect, I think there could have been a stronger campaign to ensure that he wasn't going to become the president. And um, many of us did not do that because we just didn't believe it was possible. And that was our naivete. And that is a grave error in our movement. And I will take accountability for that. Yeah, I, I didn't think it was going to happen. So. <laughs> my, my son brings it up occasionally when I'm like, that'll never happen. Well, you said that Trump would never win. I, I, I know I said that. Exactly. I have to bring that up. Exactly. Like all the damn time. I know. It's um, really terrible. That premieres next Wednesday on Torre Show. <laughs>